So, we're into week three of a series on the Kingdom of God. I've preached a series on the Kingdom of God before, but this isn't the same series. I felt to kind of just start again, look at it afresh. Firstly, we established from Scripture that God is king, as we read in Psalm 29. He has always been king. He was king over the flood. He'll be king to the end of the ages. He doesn't start or stop being king. What started or stopped was our being his loyal subjects. We rebelled and overthrew his rule in Eden. And, but he's appointed his son to reign over this kingdom of God from his first coming until his return, when he completes his kingdom among men. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, is not just heavenly or spiritual or personal or mystical, nor only in the future. And we looked at the phrase, the kingdom of God is within you, and again, if I look up on the internet to find something about the kingdom of God, that's almost entirely what is being thrown at me. The kingdom of God is, it's the kingdom of God is with you. Search inside. The kingdom of God's within you. It's a misquotation of the words of Jesus to the Pharisees. They were witnessing the kingdom of God in the life and works and words of Jesus, but were rejecting it and rejecting him. That phrase, the kingdom of God is within you, does not define the kingdom of God as merely an inward and personal experience. It's much bigger than that and much more powerful than that. That is to misuse scripture. Jesus reigns now. And by his goodness and power, he changes people. He changes situations. He answers prayers. Heaven comes to earth, as we prayed earlier, again and again and again. God is at work. He continues through his gospel and through his church to bring to people freedom from bondage, from demonic oppression, from disease, from sin. What the Lord Jesus compacted into three and a half years of public ministry, he continues to do today through his church by the Spirit. That's the kingdom of God advancing. When Jesus healed people then or drove out demons, he said that these things demonstrated God's kingdom was there. The same kingdom of God continues today. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are not different things. They're one and the same. Though dispensationalists in the Schofield Reference Bible, if you've got one, don't use it too much, says that it's just that Matthew, being Jewish and writing to Jewish people, prefers to use the word heaven rather than God in his gospel where he can. Jesus spoke a lot about the kingdom of God and teaches us how to think of the kingdom of God. And I was reflecting only yesterday that a lot of people, a lot of things I, st- things I hear about the kingdom of God are a long way away from what Jesus taught. He said, the kingdom of God is like this. But all these people over here, oh no, the kingdom of God's like this. Well, I'm going to choose who to believe, aren't I? Who am I going to believe? Jesus. Kingdom of God is like this, said Jesus. He showed us that we show the kingdom of Christ has begun. It didn't fulfill all the Jewish and rabbi, the, the, the expectations of the rabbis, rabbinical expectations. However, they supposed the Messiah's reign was going to be like this and like this and like this. And the two things we learned that, that the New Testament Christians had to get hold of was with two things that are clear in the Psalms. Jesus reigns in the midst of his enemies. He reigns despite evil still being prevalent. And he reigns until every enemy is under his feet. His kingdom will grow and increase and spread across the nations of the world. And yet we must expect not only opposition, but also mixture. Look again at these parables of of the growth of the kingdom. The sower. This is going through Matthew 13, adding in the others. The seed of the sower. 
the good seed, the gospel seed is sown, but the, not all the seed grows, and where it grows, there are various returns of fruitfulness. What's the difference? The soil, our hearts. Not every convert lasts, and not everybody is as fruitful. We're not all equally fruitful. That's a hard truth, but Jesus told us. His kingdom would be like that. The tares, the weeds. Lord, didn't you plant good wheat? Where did these weeds come from? An enemy has done this. Shall we take them out? No, no, you'll hurt the weed. The wheats, right? The wheat. Leave it till the end, and then we'll pull them out. Wheat and tares. Grow together till the end of the age, the last day. Good and evil grow to maturity together. And only the final harvest at the end of the age separates that mixture. Who told us that? Jesus. What did he say? The kingdom of God is like this. In Mark 4, 4, there's one that comes in the middle of this series, the growing seed. A farmer plants seed, it grows. He doesn't see it grow. If I stood at the bottom of my garden and willed my, grow, my runner beans to grow, it's no good me standing there saying, grow, grow. You know, go indoors and come back a few days later, David. And they, You know, you can't make things grow by looking at it. And yet the kingdom of God, even when we don't see it growing, is growing. Just because it is napping in our patch, in our corner, it's growing somewhere imperceptible yet irresistible growth of the kingdom. Then the mustard seed. Jesus said a mustard seed is a little seed. You plant it, grows into a big tree, big tree, three meters plus. But the birds of the air come and nest there. Now, if you follow the word, the phrase from Scripture, birds of the air are not good news. They're dirty things that feed on dead bodies. Talking about eagles and vultures and things like that. Birds of the air are not good news. Jesus said, my kingdom will grow and fill and be big, but there'll be some stuff getting in there. Birds of the air. And sadly, or humbly, this week, I've had to change my mind about this last one. I'm being honest with you. The parable of the yeast that fills the whole dome. Jesus said, his kingdom is like yeast that works until it's fully completed its work, until the whole lump is leavened. Now, yeast is a biblical symbol for evil. And even when Jesus talked about the yeast of the Pharisees, he used it relating to evil. I don't think he's changed his mind here. Again, it's a warning. At the same time, his kingdom grows and fills the earth, so will evil grow. At the same time. Now, we are not used to hearing that. We think, it's going to be wonderful. (laughs) We're not used to hearing these things. But this is what Jesus taught us, to expect this. The good news is, his kingdom will increase across the world. It will come to a completion. It will come to fruition. The harvest of the nations, yielding up men and women and boys and girls to faith and obedience in Jesus, will come to its fulfillment. Hallelujah. I don't have to say hallelujah. But the bad news is, evil will still be at work until the very end. That's why I do not accept millennialism, a literal 1,000-year reign of Jesus. I interpret Revelation 20 according to the old guys, the old reformers and so on. That way of thinking confuses Jesus' kingdom now with his eternal perfect kingdom after the resurrection day. It confuses those two things, that way of thinking. So we mustn't think that this side of the return of Jesus, we're going to get to live in a perfect world with perfect people. It isn't going to happen. Getting a born-again Christian into Downing Street or the White House will not bring in the kingdom of God. It won't make a lot of difference at all, really. 
No political philosophy or leader can create a new humanity living in a perfected world. Only the Lord Jesus himself will do that when he comes. I'm going quickly through this. I said some of this weeks ago, but I need to say it for some of you who weren't here. We looked at the Bible expressions, the last days and the last day. All right, let's, let's define those again. The last days are not some period ahead of us that we need to fret about. Oh, no, we don't need to fret about them because we'll be out of it. Oh, no, anyway. That kind of confused thinking. The last days is the last age of humanity between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. That, those are the last days. And the last day is literally that, the last day of this world, the last day of this time period, the day of resurrection, the day of judgment. And Jesus repeatedly in John's Gospel tells us, I will raise the one who believes in me, I will raise him up on the last day. Don't expect it before then. Don't imagine something that isn't going to happen. He will raise his people up on the last day. We also looked at the phrases, the ends of the ages and the end of the age. The ends of the ages was the overlapping period between Jesus coming and, and, and introducing his new covenant and, 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 and stamping it with his blood on the cross and the close down. It wasn't an orderly close down. The messy uh, uh, st- uh, um, yeah, can't think of a word. Catastrophic. I was thinking in Greek, catastrophic. No, catastrophic. The catastrophic end of the Age of Moses and the law. And it did come tumbling down. In AD 70, the Roman soldiers tore the temple down, stone from stone, having already desecrated it with their standards. It's never been rebuilt and never will be, whatever some preachers tell you. It would be an abomination for it to be rebuilt. God has ended the age of the law forever. The veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. By whose hand? The hand of God. This house is desolate. This house is empty. This shall be no more. God was never in that building, that particular building, that particular temple. So the end of the ages with this 40-year, this generational overlap of Jesus coming and Judaism being actually closed down. Temple Judaism. The end of the age is the, the last day, the end of the age. Jesus promised that he would be with us by the Holy Spirit implied to the end of the age. That is, he will be with us until we can all be with him through the resurrection. And he's not going back on that. That's his plan. He's with us until the end of the age and then he'll raise us all from the dead to be with him forever. In case you missed that Sunday morning, let me repeat the headline which may shock some people who've heard nothing else all their lives. Right? Here's the headline for you. There will be no secret rapture. It ain't happening. Val's agreeing with me. Well done. <laughs> we will be here until either Jesus comes on the last day or we get taken to be with him through death. And we then await our resurrection. We're here, according to his word, until the last day, the end of the age. Let's come back to the kingdom of God. There's a kingdom to come, the eternal kingdom of our God, when as resurrected and transformed human beings who will be like Jesus is in that transformed uh, spiritual but literal body, 
We will live in a new heaven and a new earth where our God, with our God forever. But right now, we are in this phase. We live in an advancing kingdom of Jesus the Messiah who rules in the midst of his enemies despite the evil, despite the apparent failure of some and the attacks upon and deceptions that work within his church. Despite all the mixture and all the mess, and I have to preach this to myself because I get down about it sometimes. Despite all the mixture and all the mess, the gospel is being preached in the world and a harvest is being gathered from the nations to our Lord Jesus. Amen. So as we heard through, so we head through July into August, let's move on. The kingdom of God is his reigning by the Lord Jesus in over men and nations and intervening into this world. What does that look like? How we recognize it? I'm going to break that down into two questions. What does this kingdom mean for me and what and what is it what does it mean for us as a Christian church? In other words, let's talk about the Christian and let's talk about the church. Talk about the Christian today. Because by the wisdom of God, he calls people to faith and obedience in his son through the gospel and saves them generally one by one. Sometimes as families, exceptionally as communities. That's kind of what we call revival, when whole towns, apart from maybe one or two reprobates, turn to the Lord. I mean, that's exceptional stuff, man. You know, but he does do that, but generally, one-to-one, sometimes families, exceptionally communities. But when he saved those people, they are to be added to his church, which is the community of his kingdom in the world. And that's going to take a couple of Sundays, and uh, I'm going to do two, then someone else will be preaching, and then I'll do some more. What is it to be a Christian? Let me break that down really simple. Let's put it like that. What does it mean to be a Christian? Uh, I want you to think about that for a moment. And if the answer is to go to church on a Sunday, we can, nah, beep, no. Um, to, to, to have certain habits, and you know, you read your Bible, yeah, maybe, but you do that because you're a Christian. What is it to be a Christian? Now, if you're thinking it's to be a child of God, because we sang it earlier, thank you, Maxine. It's a good song, that one. I'm no longer a slave to fear, for I am a child of God. All right? Yeah, that's true. But there are different ways that the Bible presents to us uh, having become a Christian. And we tend to like one of them, like, you know, evangelicals generally like to talk about being born again, and they've neglected. There's another set of scriptures that talk about adoption which is not adopting a baby, it's adopting a full-grown person to be your heir. I mean, it's, a powerful, it's a powerful truth that God has adopted us as well. He trusts us with something. We'll come to that in a week or two. Here's one we must not neglect. God has brought us into his kingdom. We are citizens of his kingdom. We are subjects of King Jesus. That is a powerful way the Bible describes our having become a Christian. Let me go there. Colossians 1. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, your conversion, your faith, he's saying, Paul writing, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's wisdom by the Spirit so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects. We'll come back to that thought. To please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance 
of the saints in light. Now listen. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I could put a word in there to make it even plainer. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. It's not a prediction of a future transaction. This is not talking about the resurrection day. This is not talking about entering the eternal kingdom. It's saying we have been switched over from one domain to another, from one kingdom to another, and it's happened now. If you're a Christian, it's already true. You didn't know it. You hadn't heard it. It's already so. You don't vote for it to be so. You don't volunteer for it to be so. Yeah? It is so. We once were there, now we're here. We once were subjects of Satan and slaves to sin and objects of... I don't know why I'm pointing that way. The cross is there. Let's go that way. <laughs> we once were there, we now are here. We once were subjects of Satan and slaves to sin and objects of divine wrath. But now we're children of God. We're subjects of King Jesus. We're objects of mercy. And New Testament writers, and particularly Peter and Paul, just keep doing this. They tell us who we are, what we are, what Jesus has done for us. That God's our Father. He's loved us. He's adopted us. He's chosen us before we were even made, before we were even born. And then when they piled all that on you, blessed you and encouraged you, you yes, they say, therefore... Stop fornicating. Stop lying. Stop thieving. Do what pleases the Lord. Do you have to talk to Christians like that? Yeah, you do. Because you're not what you were, because God has chosen you and given you new birth and adopted you, here's the headline. Live this new way, not your old way. Live as a citizen of this kingdom, not that one. I've got to remember which way I'm pointing. <laughs> Live in this kingdom. Live with all of the benefits and all, all, of the, all, all of the choices you need to make because you're now a citizen of the kingdom of God and have nothing to do with that old domain, with that old darkness, with those old ways. Nothing to do with those. Scripture, particularly the teaching of Jesus himself in John's Gospel, which is then applied in John's letters as we studied through them a year or two ago. Jesus teaches us and John, John applies it. We are not of this world. And yet we continue to live in the world. We are to resist the pressure of the world, which is the godless system of mankind. The way people are outside of God. The way they live. It's not always really foul and nasty, it's just godless. Do you understand? We're to resist the pressure of the world to conform to its ways. Indeed, if we love the world, we don't love God. Let me remind you of it. 1 John 2, verse 5, 15. I have to keep moving. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, I'm going to translate a few of these words here because they're slightly old-fashioned. The lust or appetite of the flesh of your physical being. 
the lust or appetite of the eyes, what you see and want. And the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away. It may seem to be like getting ready to go forever. It won't. It will pass away. And also its appetites. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. John there identifies three principles that drive the world, this godless society of men and women. Let me give you those principles of three words. They begin with A because then it's easier to help you. Number one, appetites. The lust of the flesh of your physical being for food, for drink, for comfort, for pleasure, for sex. They can be used for godly Christian living. They can be used in a debased way that will only bring guilt and condemnation upon yourself. You can be a glutton, you can be a drunkard, you can be a sex addict and so on. Human appetites. Avarice, greed, the lust of the eyes, what the old law, the law of Moses, called covetousness. You see it, you want it. Yeah? The lust of the eyes. And then ambition, the boastful pride of life, the drive to be bigger, greater, more famous, to impress, to succeed, to win a reality show on TV. Yeah? The boastful pride of life. Do we see these things for what they are? These are the driving forces of our godless world around us. Let me explain this to you. Those three things are what Adam and Eve had thrown at them by Satan in the garden and fell into sin. Those three things are what the Son of Man had thrown at him by Satan in the wilderness but he overcame Satan and them. They are what are thrown at us, hour by hour, as we live in the world, and are bombarded by the media. They are what advertising depends upon. It wouldn't work apart from those. They're indeed what capitalism and consumerism largely depends upon. Companies depend upon you buying into these values, so you buy their goods. So for us as Christians... Let me punch this, I'm being strong, I know. If we are not consciously contending with these things, we're being conquered by them. If you're not grappling with them, they've already got you grappled. If we're not combating the influence of the world, we are conforming to the world. We're thinking, behaving just like people who don't know God. Let me go back to John's Gospel for this word from our Master. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know it's hated me before it hated you. If you're of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. And it seems to me that Christians and the church have for a long, long time now been trying very, very hard to stop the world hating us. We don't want them to hate us. Jesus said, of course they're going to hate you. If you're identified with me, they hate me. If you're identified with me, if you carry my name and if you live the way I teach you, they're going to hate you. Many of us are in fear of being accused by the world of being holier than thou. 
Not everybody knows that phrase nowadays, but it used to be that. Oh, you're a Christian, are you? You're holier than thou. You look down on other people. Now, if by that phrase, as it comes from Isaiah 65 in the King James, verse 5, we mean what Isaiah meant by the Spirit and what Jesus meant when he told us a story about a Pharisee who went and prayed only with himself, but a sinner who prayed to heaven for forgiveness and heaven answered him, and he went back that day justified, we would be describing this holier-than-thou attitude an attitude of self-righteousness, probably legalism, that looks down on others and condemns them. The Pharisee prayed, I thank thee, God, I'm not like other men, including that guy over there. What a horrible attitude. In fact, to this day, we call that attitude of self-righteousness and being judgmental to others, Phariseeism. We've coined the phrase. That's what it's called. It's not appropriate. Jesus hated that attitude. And to this day, his, his condemnation of the Pharisees tells us where, where we're at here. Listen, we're all sinners, but some of us have been redeemed and have been regenerated and we are being remade by the work of the Spirit of God. And because we're redeemed and because we're regenerated and because we're adopted by God, we are called to be different. We are called to be holy in other people without putting on that Pharisee attitude of looking down on others. Yes, we are called to be holier. We are called to be different. 1 Peter 1 verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. It's added there, but spirit's added. So just be sober in every way. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former appetites which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, in all your lifestyle, in all your choices, in every way that you use your time. Am I getting there? Because it is written, you shall be holy. Why? For I am holy. God is raising holy children for himself. Our Father is very holy. In fact, he is holy, holy, holy. Nor in the Bible do you read, God is love, love, love. That's a Beatles song, right? But you read in the Bible, God is holy, holy, holy. And he is making us ready to live with him, to be with him. We've got to figure out what holiness looks like this side of the resurrection day, this side of our own death. We're not to be conformed back to our old way of life before we came to faith in Jesus, to be conformed to this world, because he's called, our Father's called himself, to himself through Christ to be holy. That means we do live differently from others, and they will probably not like that. And they'll accuse us of having that attitude. We say, no, I'm not looking down on you, but I cannot make the choices you make. I can't live as you live. Let me say this to you too. We cannot influence and win people from the world by conforming to the world. That is a lie. It doesn't happen. It doesn't work. Oh, I'll just become more like them and then I'll, I'll, I'll get them nearer Jesus. Now, you've wandered further away from Jesus thinking you're going to be more impressive to them. There is nothing that makes such an impression as a happy, holy, joy-filled, spirit-filled human being called a Christian. 
Boy, do they make a difference. Boy, do they make an impression. Jesus said this, let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. They see something of the Father's likeness in his child. My shirt's coming on. <laughs> it, might, it might give the, the, the this is cream, not, not no, no. <laughs> um, it is. Let your light so shine. Don't dumb it down. I, I won't talk about being a Christian. I'll, I'll just be like everybody else. Let your light so shine. He also said that we're the salt of the earth. Salt is not something... We put salt on food to make it taste better, yeah? Old, Old Testament times, New Testament times, they put salt on food to stop it rotting. They put salt on meat to stop it rotting. That's why you salted meat to take on voyages. Salt stops the rot. We're here to stop the rot, not join in with it. Is all this really important? Do you think I'm just having a go? I'm going to hit you with about three sets of scriptures from Paul to show how important this is. You may not have heard the scriptures before. Come on, voice, please. 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know? He's writing to Christians. Paul's writing to Christians. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That eternal kingdom to come, they're not going to get it. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, as people have sex outside of marriage, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, people who have sex despite being married, yeah, with the wrong people, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. Oh, these are uncomfortable words, aren't they? Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I should read on and say, Paul writes, and such were some of you, but you have been justified, you've been cleansed by the Spirit of God and by the, by the, by the blood of Christ. But these things will keep you out of God's eternal kingdom. Galatians 5, verse 16. I say, walk by the Spirit. You'll not carry out the desire of the flesh, human nature. The flesh desires, sets its desire against the Spirit, capital S, thank you, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, that you may not do the things that you please. You can't just do everything you imagine, because it's not all good, is it? Is every thought that passes through your mind worth even retaining? No. You discipline them, you reject them, you put them out of mind again. But you're, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, the whole sexiness of everything, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then in Ephesians 2, this you know with certainty. No immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolatry because he sees the things and he loves them and he desires them, you know, possessions, covetous man, he's an idolater, he's, uh, he's worshipping his car, his yacht, his whatever it is, yes? Has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 
To live as the world lives is to be excluded from the eternal kingdom of God and his Christ. So yes, to answer the question, this really matters. Those who are in his kingdom now and will enter his eternal kingdom then don't live like that because they are his children, because they are citizens of his kingdom, disciples of Jesus. I'm going to give you a little short list. I can't open up all the poor roads that I started to a bit. I want to be really clear about three things, just three things this morning. Sexual cleanliness. It matters what we do with our bodies. It matters what we do with other people's bodies. It matters what we do with our minds regarding sex. Interesting, I dug into Greek a bit. In Greek, a pornos is a prostitute chaser. Pornos, a prostitute chaser. In the King James, that's sometimes translated by a, a really fierce old English word, whoremonger. It kind of sticks you right there, doesn't it? Yeah, that's what it is. The person who uses another's body, or let me say in this age of internet and porn, another's image for their selfish pleasure is, I believe, biblically characterized as a harlot chaser, a whoremonger. Sex between a husband and wife in loving, committed relationship is honorable and for Christians is positively blessed by God. But sex in any other form dishonors God and our own selves. Cleanness of speech. We're not to swear by anything or make oaths or let, but let our yes be yes and our no be no, said Jesus. We're not to use obscenity, foolish talk or coarse jesting. I've given scriptures in the notes. We are to use sound and wholesome speech. We cannot be condemned. Christians should be known by the way we speak and the way we don't speak. We don't revile people. We don't swear. We don't use coarse words. In Wales, during the revival in the early 1900s, the pit ponies had a problem. Down the mines, the pit ponies had a problem. Because miners were getting converted, going back to the pits, and these ponies had only ever heard orders as swear words. Suddenly they were giving instructions and even, you know, being beaten all the time as well. Suddenly these miners were being kindly and speaking respectfully to their ponies. The ponies had to learn a whole new way of being ordered around because the miners now had clean mouths. In China, I understand this from being told, all right, I don't speak Chinese, don't pretend to, no. In China, I'm told, the general level of the Chinese language is very rough. It's full of profanity, full of, full of rudeness. Do you know what the nickname for a Christian is in China? That clean mouth. Because they stand out. Straight away. You can tell who the Christian is in China because they don't speak like everybody else. And I mean everybody else. They've got clean mouth. And lastly there, clean hands. We're not to steal from or to defraud people, including our fellow citizens, by cheating on our taxes. We're to work for our living. We're to live honest, irreproachable lives. The world should only be able to accuse us of one thing, that we are faithfully living the way Jesus told us. And we'll suffer that if we need to be, because we're unashamed of it. But if they can accuse us of anything else, and they're right, that we're in the wrong, you know, if you see what I mean, we need to straighten up. We're not of this world and we're to be known for being different from this world. And people come to me saying, the excuse is, oh, but everybody does it. Yeah, but you're not everybody. We are not everybody else. We are the Lord's. He's called us to his own holiness.
to attain to seeing his face, having been purified from all sin. I want to give you a parable to end this morning. All right? Carol and I came back from holiday last late, sorry, late Wednesday evening, having heard nothing at all from the UK since midday the previous Wednesday. As we boarded the plane, David Cameron was in Parliament doing PMQs, all right, and then he was going to the palace to resign, and then Theresa May was going to the palace to be Prime Minister. So we missed all the PMQs, we missed, you know, the leaving the number 10 and arriving. I'd have been watching TV because I'm a, I'm a freak for these things. Yeah, I like a bit of this politics stuff. And we were away from all that. And we came back and we, you know, a, bit, a little bit on Wednesday night, but most on Thursday morning, we were kind of catching up on the news. And I think Carol was in the bathroom and I was kind of sitting on the edge of the bed and went, what? She said, what's the matter with you? I said, they made Boris Johnson foreign secretary. Yeah. I was like, what? Anyway, that brings me to this subject. Let's think for a moment about the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Her Majesty's Foreign and Commonwealth Office, and British embassies. Here's the parable, the story. You'll see where I'm going. I know you will. In every major city in this world, the UK, which is called there Britain usually, just goes by British and Britain, the UK has appointed representatives there, an ambassador with an embassy, or a high commissioner with a commission, or a consul with a consulate, and we staff those overseas offices from here. Only a few junior staff are recruited locally. Everybody else is a Brit sent out to do the job. When we send a diplomat and his family abroad, we expect them to live in that country as representatives of this country, of our Queen, and of our government, of our values, and so on. Both the diplomat and the embassy, or the consulate and, and in that place, are representative of Britain. They live as Britons abroad. They speak on behalf of the British government and people, and if guests are invited to the embassy or the consulate, they even served British food. That's how, what these places are. They're enclaves of Britain in a foreign place. Now, what happens sometimes is the diplomat or the employee does what the foreign office, excuse me, this is what the foreign office say, he goes native. In other words... He likes this place and he begins to adopt the local customs and, and live like the local people and maybe he goes around wearing a long gown and slippers, you know, instead of a two-piece suit or something. And, and he thinks he can kind of just fit in and be there and be part of all that and so on. And, and when the foreign office gets here, they say, whoa, 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 what do they say to him? Sort it or you're coming home. Don't they? You bet they do. We sent you there to be British. We sent you there to represent this nation. Not to chill out and do what you fancy and just become like everybody else. This man has moved from his calling. One of two things must happen. He must either reform, change his ways, or be recalled. He wasn't sent there to become like the other people, but to represent the country and the head of that state who sent him there. And listen, you get the punchline? You get it? It's the same with us. We are Christ's ambassadors.
We are no longer of the world, yet God in his wisdom has sent us back into this world as his children, as his subjects, to live as his citizens in a foreign environment. That's not speaking about anybody's culture, nationality. I'm talking about the world and the church. We, as God's people, live in a foreign environment. All of us. We live as God's representatives. We speak on his behalf. We are not here to conform to the world and its values, but to serve our king and represent his values. To live his way as an example to others. If we adopt the ways of the people around us, we fail in our calling. If we do not faithfully represent him, we may as well be recalled. In other words, go home. We're not living for the rulers of this world, but for our Lord Jesus. We're not seeking our inheritance here, but in the world to come. We are aliens and strangers. You think I'm laying on thick. No, Peter says this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as, give me the word, aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and those chosen according to the foreknowledge of God our Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. A few verses down, he says the same thing. Chapter 2. Beloved, Beloved, I urge you, because you are aliens and strangers, to abstain from fleshly appetites that war against the soul. Get some discipline, get some fight, get some fight back here. Don't be taken down. Stand up against these things. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, just like a Brit in Saudi Arabia. Sorry to compare being British to being a Christian. You know, it's just a comparison. I'm not inferring anything by that. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. In Hebrews 13, there's this remarkable comment about the saints of old. Abraham and Isaac and David and Isaiah and All these died in faith without receiving the promises but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed, here we go again, that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Sundays in our house, when I was little, you know, when I was little, when he, when he had Christian music playing, I remember a tape to tape, you know, reel to reel tape of Jim Reeves. <laughs> Some of you guys about singing, This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Yeah? Yep. Terrible imitation. It's true, folks. This world is not our home. We are strangers and exiles waiting for our kingdom to come. We're waiting for our country. And guess what? Our country is the whole planet. We inherit the whole earth. People battle over little bits of territory here and buy and sell houses, millions of pounds. We get the whole thing. For those who say such things make it clear that they're seeking a country of their own. I wrote this up 
about Brexit. You know, you know. Okay, this is my country, but in another sense, it's not my country. I'm living for a better country. And even now, I'm a citizen of a better kingdom. I, I, I respect the Queen immensely, but I, I have an even better king. If indeed, sorry, no scripture. If indeed they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, like Abraham from Chaldees, they would have had the opportunity to return. But they desired a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He's prepared a city for them. We are strangers and aliens and exiles, and most days we are just too comfortable. We get, we get dulled in our thinking. Well, this is it. This is okay. And then, guess what? A truck mows down 85 people along the boulevard of Nice. A fellow who's barely a kid takes an axe running down a train in Bavaria. And then, just a few days ago, a 19-year-old gets a 9mm weapon, 300 rounds, and kills 19... Nine, was it nine, nine people? Desperately injures dozens, ten mortally wounded, still fighting for their lives. It's a nice place, this world, isn't it? Isn't it cosy living here? No, it isn't. No, it isn't. And when you hear such news, it's a wake-up call to us. Hey, do you know what? Evil's still at work here. We are still living with an extraordinary mixture in this time, in this age, in this planet. But our time will come. We will see our Lord Jesus. He will give us a great inheritance. But guess what? Right now, we've got some living to do here. And we need to get our heads around being, I'm an alien and a stranger and an exile, and I'm not living to be as comfortable as I can be with this world. I'm living to be as honouring as I can be for Jesus. And guess what? The world just might not like that very much. But it's okay. I saved this scripture for last, and I've gone a long time now. I could have quoted this earlier, but I left it till here. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, all that is argued before, this sovereign mercy of God that's redeemed us and adopted us and renewed us and we don't walk by the flesh but by the spirit now and we don't we're no longer slaves of sin as we sang triumphant, but we're slaves of righteousness. Therefore, brothers, by this incredible mercy of God, present your bodies. I'm glad he said bodies because people want to give their heart to Jesus but not much else. Yeah? Present your bodies, everything you are and everything you do as living and holy sacrifices acceptable to God, which is your logical service of worship. It's reasonable. It just makes sense. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That, I pray God, is happening to some of us right here this morning. As God's word filters in through our understanding, and we begin to think differently. We're transformed. We're renewed by the, in the spirit of our minds. So that we, you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And the devil will tell you the will of God is hard and arduous and, 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 and depressing. No, doing the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. You'll find no greater joy, no greater peace than doing what pleases God. We live for him who lived and died and lived for us. 
Take hold of what you heard today. Be transformed by this. Take hold of the great grace of God by which he chose you and called you and remade you and is remaking you. Listen to and follow the Holy Spirit. He will lead and empower you to be all that you've been called and set apart to be. Resist being conformed to this world. It's a fight. I don't call you to an easy task here. We are in a battle against those things we talked about earlier. The appetites, the avarice, the ambition. They creep in. They're being fed to us continually. Be changed. Be holy. Wake up to the fact you're going to be criticized by somebody somewhere for doing the right thing. For letting your light so shine. When it happens, you're allowed a small smile. What? At least a small smile. Because as Jack said last week, I haven't listened to the whole sermon, I've read some of the notes. Scripture actually says, when you're persecuted for what? For righteousness sake? For doing the right thing? For honoring Jesus? Rejoice and be glad. So if someone says, I don't like the way you don't swear and I don't like the way... You just go, don't you, Andy? You just smile. Just smile. You take it as joy. They've seen it. Thank you, Lord. Don't give them a lecture. Talk down at them. Just receive your rebuke from them for your righteousness as being actually a reward. You're doing well. You're doing well. We've sung it at times. These words. We're going to play this during breaking bread. Christ is enough for me. Christ is enough for me. Everything I need is in you. Everything I need. And then we sing this bit of a much older song. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me. I I would love you to take a moment when we're breaking bread and actually say that as these words come up as we're singing out loud. Because it's one thing to say, you know, we're so tricksy, aren't we? Our hearts are so deceitful. The cross before me, the world behind me. (laughs) Stand stock still, absolutely sober, deadly serious, and say it, the cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back. No turning back. What if you're not yet a Christian? You came here this morning and this is kind of really all new to you. This crazy preacher telling you all this stuff. Well, it's all about Jesus. That's the main thing. I want you to ask today, take a moment or two. You can opt out of doing this with us because you're not ready for it yet anyway, really. Just take this time in these next minutes to ask the Lord Jesus to be your king. Submit yourself to him. Tell him you believe in him and you're going to trust him. You come to him not only for forgiveness for your past, but for strength and hope for a new life, a new way of life. 24-7 life, not go to church Sunday life, 24-7, new Christian life. In the same way that Jesus went to the cross and died, but rose again on the third day, so he offers you death to your old life and the start of a new life in and with him. 
And the day will come, I pray soon for some people, when we act that out in water baptism. We bury you and your old life in the water. We raise you up and you say, now go and live a new life for Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I want to take a moment again to honour you and thank you. You have redeemed us by your blood. And you redeemed us not so we would just keep on the way we were and just keep coming back for another dose of forgiveness, but that you might be at work in us to change us, to renovate us, to remake us. And you want us to cooperate with that and and aspire and desire to, to change, to be made more in your image. You call us to be different from the world, to, to be fighting against those values, which you resisted. Adam and Eve failed in the garden to resist them, but you resisted them, Lord Jesus. And now you want to teach us how to do the same. To say no to the world of flesh and the devil, to say no to the appetites and avarice and ambition that riddles this world and its values. We are, we confess now, if we have known the call of the Spirit to trust in Christ and have responded to that by again by the work of the Spirit, we are now the children of God and we are your citizens, Jesus. You are our King. You're our Master. That transfer, we did not make it happen. You made it happen. So we own and confess. We stand now, not in darkness, not in sin, not in the world, but in your kingdom. And as we take bread and wine, or the emblems of them again today, remembering again your sacrifice for us, by which we are knitted to you, joined to you forever. Oh, Jesus, we so thank you. We want to so yield again. I was going to say hearts and minds, but the Bible says bodies too. All that we are, all that we have, all that we are in life. And say, come, Lord Jesus, reign in me. Reign in me. Let there be no dark places which I hide from your kingdom, from your light. Reign in us, Lord Jesus. Amen.